Welcome back to Clay, the podcast for Christian men designed to be the best they can possibly be for his kingdom to come. Courageous leaders always yearning for more Jesus. Today we have a special treat. I had the privilege of preaching this past Sunday, and so what you're about to hear is a recording of that message. This uh, passage, this uh, sermon focuses on Acts chapter 21, verses 15 to 26. We're going to take a look at uh, Paul, his likely entourage, those that were following him, those that were with him, why they were with him, and we're also going to take a look at uh, Paul's approach to uh, unity and his desire to unify believers for a singular purpose, uh, not so much for uh, peace, uh, not although that is a, a byproduct of unity, uh, but rather for the mission itself and the focus on the mission itself. Um, my hope is that uh, you uh, enjoy this uh, this sermon, uh, you enjoy the message, and uh, if it resonates with you, if this is something you think the church needs to hear, if this is something you think uh, your brothers need to hear, then uh, press that share button and share it on. It's been three or four years you guys have been going through Acts, is that right? <laughs> it's, it's been a while. I uh, Funny story about that, I remember I... Uh, Lead pastor at the church I grew up at. He took a couple of years to go through Acts, and uh, it was one of my favorite uh, favorite series as a young man uh, that 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 I that I have a recollection of uh, because he was so committed to helping us understand what it looked like to be the church and to. Uh, to see what it looked like from the, the beginning, the conception of the Christian church, to follow that along, and to see where uh, we're at today. Uh, he, he, he had a, a commitment to show us, look, the church is the church. Despite the years that we've gone on, the, the, different, uh, <laughs> the different things that have happened over the last couple thousand years. And we could have a, a long history lesson today. Uh, we won't do that. Uh, but much, much has happened. The church has changed. The church has grown. And yet, the gospel's still the same. The truth is still the same. The principles here are still the same. And in God's word is still the same. And his word for us today as the church is, believe it or not, still the same. The same as it was here. And so that's what we're going to continue to take a look at today. Uh, last week, uh, Aaron asked a question, and this is a great question for us to think about today, is uh, Paul and his, uh, his uh, followers at this point in time that he has met on mission, right? Paul has been taking the gospel to the Gentile nations over the last few chapters as we have read. He is uh, on his journey back to Jerusalem now. They are going back to Jerusalem. And, uh, and Aaron asked a couple of questions last week. He asked uh, something to the effect of, if you knew the trouble that you were going through, are going to go through, if you knew the suffering that you were going to step into, if you knew what was coming, if you knew what the result was that you were uh, going to step into with the actions that you had to take, would you still do it? Or would you start looking for a way out? Would you start looking for an alternate path? Would you start looking for maybe uh, a path of, of least resistance, as we're often, often taught and, and in our culture? Today, we're often encouraged to look for that path of least resistance, to look for the easy way out. And the more we take that easy way out, we find that uh, it becomes easier and easier and easier to continue down that path, does it not? And yet, 
Paul does something uh, incredible for us to look at and to learn from. He does not take that easy way out. He continues to push forward. He continues to set his face towards Jerusalem. Aaron also pointed out last week and in the last couple of weeks that there are a lot of similarities here in Paul's approach to Jerusalem as our very own Jesus Christ's approach to Jerusalem. Not in saying that they are by any means one and the same. They're absolutely not. But the manner at which Paul made the way to Jerusalem, despite being encouraged not to, despite being pleaded with, don't go, Paul. You know what is going to happen. You know where you're headed. You know what lies before you. Paul knew that he must go. And uh, as excited as I am for what happens in Jerusalem, uh, today we're going to take a really uh, close look at the run-up to Jerusalem. Uh, And and he's going to get to Jerusalem, and we're going to see some interactions here. And if we're not careful, uh, we're going to uh, read through this passage and think that it's just a repetition of a few chapters back, chapters 15, uh, chapters 14 even, uh, where uh, we're dealing with this, this contention between the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers. We're dealing with uh, people who are coming to faith in Christ who don't have the Jewish background, who don't have the background of the law, who don't have uh, the culture that they've been immersed in and raised in of, this, of these traditions. And uh, it's been emphasized multiple times that we should not be divided over these separate cultures, but rather unified through Christ, unified at the gospel level, unified at the message that brings us together. That is what we should do. And what we're going to see today is another example of people getting in the way, like we so often do. This is uh, why religion often gets a bad rap. Because as people, whether you're Christian or not, there is a tendency, there's a desire to be the God of your own life to make your own rules, to make everything fit into what you want it to fit into, including God. And I don't know if you've uh, thought about the size of God, but he's going to be pretty tough to fit in your box. But it's awfully tempting to do that. It's really tempting to take his word and try and slice it up and dice it up to make it fit your agenda, whatever is going to be the most comfortable for you, whatever is going to meet you where you're at. That would be an inaccurate and unacceptable use of his word. And we know that. We know that. But when it comes to living out our life, especially in a uh, cultural world, where we have lots of cultures co-mingled, a lot of different backgrounds. In my neighborhood alone, uh, we have uh, neighbors uh, across the street from us that are very, very Buddhist. And we have neighbors next to us who come from a Hindu background. Uh, we have neighbors two houses down that are very much so agnostic, and across the street from them, very much so atheist. Okay? Those are the four houses surrounding our house. All right? And we have a nice block, and we have a lot of different other cultures represented in our neighborhood. And we know this because uh, we've been fortunate enough to meet our neighbors and to get to know them. But that's where, that's where we live. And today, we're going to see Paul make his way to get to Jerusalem. And he's going to have with him a a band of brothers, so to speak. He's going to have with him a a group of people, an entourage. This sermon has been titled, A Likely Entourage, because this entourage that is with Paul 
we should not be surprised by the people that are with him today. On this journey, we should not be surprised at all that there are people represented from every city that he's been at where a church has been established who are now joining him on this mission. And it would be easy for us just to stop and say, well, it's because they're taking up tithes and offerings. They're all, you know, they're protecting these gifts, these gifts that these churches are bringing. And what are these gifts for? Well, these gifts are for uh, unifying the, the church, showing the Jewish background believers, the early church, hey, the gospel's moving. It's going to these far-reaching cities. It's continuing to go. And look, they're excited. They're stoked about Jesus. They're pumped about this mission. And the great thing is that they're, they, they want to be on the same team here. Look, look at these gifts. Look at, these, look at their, their, their unifying behavior. They want to be part of the same team. Because together, we're going to get a lot further in this world than we will divided. A house divided against itself will not stand. And so in this example, we have these people going, yeah, we're going to bring these gifts but there's far more than money and offerings that are tying this group together. The mission itself is tying this likely entourage together. These believers who are headed to Jerusalem with Paul, knowing they've seen, uh, they've seen the prophecies, they've seen them firsthand. They're very familiar with this idea now of Paul being bound They're aware that this is going to happen. And they're saying, yep, I'm with that guy. This is the the vacation I've always wanted. I'm going to go travel to Jerusalem and go meet some new people and see some new culture and see some new experiences and probably face persecution. Sign me up. The guy that I've been following, the guy that I've been putting all this, really this, this faith in, I've been listening to and studying under and learning from, he's going to get thrown in prison. In some way, shape, or form. I'm not sure how it's going to look yet, but that's where he's going, and I'm going to go follow that, because that makes sense. You can see it makes an an awful lot of sense today with with our why and and what it is that that Paul is, is heading to Jerusalem to do. His focus and his determination are nothing that we haven't seen before. If you remember, uh, going back a few chapters, Paul was formerly known as Saul. And he was a persecutor of Christians. He uh, was known uh, for arresting, for murdering Christians. Because anybody that was part of the way was not part of his way and was going the wrong way. And so Paul would seek them out, drag them out in the streets, Saul, rather. And this is, this is, this is who he was. He was devout, he was focused, and he was convicted of his purpose. Stopping the way from progressing, stopping the way from growing. And so, on the way to Damascus, Saul meets Jesus. He meets him and he spends uh, three days in Damascus. And uh, he, he goes through uh, what we would call a transformation which leads to a couple of years of studying under and learning from the early apostles. And he comes out of that a changed man, not only by name, but in purpose, 
and mission. But he's still the same convicted, devout, and focused man, is he not? He's still been charging forward. And as you have stayed with uh, our sermon series for the last several weeks, you've seen Paul continuing to press forward and lead the early church in mission. He's reaching out. He is the perfect, the perfect missionary to the Gentile believers. He's has this background rooted, steeped deep in Jewish tradition and Jewish culture. What better person to demonstrate unity for the church than somebody who knows, who fought for, and who killed for the law? This is the perfect person for this role. To step into uh, the Gentile community and take Jesus with him. To lay before the, uh, the, the Gentile non-believers, the pagans, and share with them the gospel. To take it to the nations and so on and so forth and continuing. This is the perfect person. So as we pick up in verse 15 of chapter 21, uh, we're going to take a look at uh, 15 and 16. I'm going to take a little break uh, and, and talk about those couple of verses, and then we're going to pick up and finish the, the passage, and we'll talk about uh, the rest of the passage. So uh, 15. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, we, we being the likely entourage that I forementioned. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of and Nason, Nason, Iron and I talked about that for quite a while. How do you say the name? Don't worry about it. Of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. So being an early disciple, Nason is a, is a man who uh, has given his life over to Christ, but who has been raised in and steeped in that same Jewish tradition. So his community is one of, uh, of, of Jewish companionship. There's a status symbol there. In any culture, go figure, where you have a way of life, just like ours, where people kind of do the similar things and dress in a similar way, and you know, you go and you have your job, and you got your house, and you got your garage, and you back your car into your garage, you shut the door, and then you don't see anybody because you wouldn't want to meet your neighbors, that type of thing. Um, here we go with a, a similar a, a approach. The Jewish community, they would be looking at Nathan and going, all right. You're going to invite them into your house, huh? Okay. So that's where your allegiances lie? What about us? Or rather, they're going to see him and go, oh, so it's true. You, you're, you're one of those. You're following the way. Or there's, the, uh, there, there's just the fact that uh, they're just going to make it difficult for him. They're going to stop talking to him. They're going to stop, uh, stop working with him, stop trading with him. They'll shun him from their society, at least until he goes and uh, follows the rites of purification in the temple and uh, gets clean, because he's now invited unclean people into his house. And that's a no-no, especially at different periods of time. That's it's, it's breaking the law. It's breaking, it's breaking the law. Come on, Nathan. Yeah, he does it anyway. And, and, and why? Why would you invite somebody into your home that could make you stand out to your community that can make you a target? Why would you, why would you do that? Would you invite somebody into your home knowing that your neighbors are paying attention? Assuming your neighbors are paying attention and they, they see you, would you invite people into your home that may give you a bad name, 
What would you, what would you do in this situation? And that's not for me to uh, tell you one way or the other what, what should be done, but the question remains the same. If you had an opportunity to align yourself with Jesus, to align yourself with the gospel, but it meant that your neighborhood was going to look at you a little weird, that you may not have the same friends that you had before, would you, would you do it? Now, you're probably not going to have uh, somebody like Paul and a likely entourage show up at your doorstep and ask for lodging. You're probably not going to do that. But what you may run into is an opportunity at work where there's a policy that's been enacted. There's something that you now have to do to go with the flow, to be part of the, the group, to not create any waves, but this goes directly against what you believe. This goes directly against uh, your morals, your values, and, and perhaps it goes directly against truth, goes directly against the Word of God. If you say something, now you have a target on your head. Now you're that guy or that girl. People don't want to sit with you at the lunch table anymore. You feel like you're in middle school again. Would you do it? Would you say something? Would you say, no, I'm with Jesus. I'm still with Jesus. This, this doesn't go with Jesus, and I'm with Jesus. So I'm going to go this way. Whatever's going to happen here is going to happen, I guess. I'm ready. Or would you... Yeah. I don't really agree with this, but... I don't really want to be different. And I really want to stand out. Or perhaps it's, uh, it's limited to maybe just your family. Maybe it's uh, in your own personal circle. Maybe it's at a family gathering. And you're faced with a choice to stand firm in your faith or to get along. To stand firm in truth or be quiet and step back. Now, getting along could be the, you could still get along and get along in truth, can you not? You don't have to be boisterous and, and loud and obnoxious and, and start calling people names. In fact, that would probably not do you any good at all. Nor would that be very productive in building a relationship, nor would that be uh, being a great example of who Jesus is in your life. But it's really easy to assume that that's the only path or that because you stand firm in your faith and you speak up, that, that it's going to go down like that, that you're going to break hearts and break relationships. Sometimes we just need to be the example of conversation, the example of somebody willing to ask some questions, to get involved and to get engaged in what somebody may, be going, may or may not be going through. In Acts 20, verse 4, if you just turn back a chapter, you'll see who the, this entourage is specifically. And there's a lot of names here that I have I'm, I pronounced them seven different ways in the last week, so uh, bear with me here. But picking up in, uh, in verse 4, chapter 20, verse 4, Sopater, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus, and Segundus, and Gaius, and Derby, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus, Tychicus or Tychicus, whatever, and Trophimus. 
These all went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. These are some of the entourage that's been named very, very recently. These are some of the followers that are keeping up with Paul, that are protecting the gifts, and that are going back to the Jewish believers, the Jewish brothers who are excited about what Jesus has done in their life and what he's doing in their life and what he's going to continue to do. If you turn back with me to verse 17, uh, we're going to continue on with Paul and this likely entourage. Verse 17. I'm going to go ahead and read through, uh, through 26. Uh, and then we'll, we'll talk about what's going on here. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. Uh, on all, all the elders, this is the, the apostles, this is the early church. These are, these are the same people that have sent a similar letter that we're about to read about to the Gentile believers uh, in chapters past. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they had heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are zealous for the law. So they're really excited about what Paul is sharing. They're really excited about this, unlike, this likely entourage who's come and joined Paul. They're really excited about what they're hearing. And they're also going to point out something here. Paul, let's not forget about the uh, thousands of Jewish believers who were once steeped and rooted in this Jewish tradition, who are now believers in Christ, they're still zealous for the law. They haven't just given up their life and their traditions and the way that they used to live. They haven't just set that aside. What they've done is turn and profess their faith in Christ. And yet there's still tradition and culture that they have chosen to hold on to. It's how they were raised. It's their life. It's what they know. Verse 21, And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to their our customs. What then is to be done? So these thousands of believers are hearing that Paul, who used to be like them, who's not like them, who's reaching the Gentiles, has been preaching and teaching and saying, you need to forsake the Jewish law, forsake your Jewish customs. And we've talked in uh, sermons past in the last couple of months here uh, that uh, those things are rumors that uh, Paul never said that. But that these things have been spoken about him. And in his letters to the churches throughout the rest of the New Testament here, you often see this as a contention. He brings it up. Hey, I know these people are saying this about me, but you, you guys know I was with you and I actually, this is what I said. And there's example after example of that in, in his letters. What then is to be done? Verse, verse 22. They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Paul then took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. 
So this ritual purification here, this is a Jewish custom to clean yourself, to become clean again, uh, so that you could uh, spend time in the temple and so that you can go through your rites of purification. And Paul's been on missionary journey. He's been, uh, he's been away from Jewish customs. So he's coming back, and he's going to demonstrate the fact that, no, I have in fact not said those things that have been said that I've said. I am simply uh, leading and sharing and, and sharing this, this, this gospel message to the Gentiles, and we're starting churches, and this is what's been going on, but you guys have heard this. Okay? So I'm going to demonstrate in a unifying act. I'm going to go through these rites of purification. And I'm also going to pay the expenses of these other four to further show that, hey, like I, I am here with you. I am here with you. This is not something that's worth dividing over. This is not something that's worth losing sight of what is happening here. But if we're not careful, we're going to find ourselves arguing over things that are not valuable and missing what is truly valuable. Now, I know that uh, for some of us, uh, me included, at first reading this, you might go, man, Paul seems kind of like he's trying to, trying to fit in one place and fit in another and just kind of trying to please everybody, make everybody happy. And that would be an easy assumption here. But what we know about Paul and his character and what he has spoken to is that that's, that's not quite, quite it. It's not quite true. If you turn with me to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 9, verse 19, I'm going to read 19 through 23 here. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law otherwise known as Gentiles. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all things I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Now again, you could read that and go, man, Paul's, Paul's kind of seemed a little wishy-washy here. He's a little trying to please everybody still. But you'd be missing that last half of verse 22 and 23. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. The, the problem that Paul is dealing with here is something that we certainly deal with today. And in many ways, in fact. Paul is dealing with a group of people that wants the Gentiles, the new believers, to, to follow their law and, and their customs because that's what they would prefer. But it would be unreasonable to expect a people group who have not partaken in uh, Jewish law and customs for their entire life. Their heritage doesn't speak to that. In fact, their heritage speaks to all sorts of different things. In many cases, uh, they come from a background of, of, of people that believe in all sorts of gods, who believe in sacrifices to whomever you wanted to sacrifice to, who believed in sexual immorality, who believed in all sorts of things that, that, that we do look at and go, okay, like, 
yes, Jesus, no, no to that stuff. Come on. And that's where that letter came back in. Hey, we have re-edified this point. Abstain from sexual immorality. Abstain from food sacrifice to idols. Because these are things that are crucial and important in their relationship with God and developing their faith. These are things that are worth that are worth conflict over. But for them to learn and to adopt all of this Jewish law and custom, when Jesus came to fulfill the law, well, that would not make sense. That would not make sense at all. And so Paul is demonstrating here, and he is, he, he is living in a way and speaking to the fact that it is the gospel that ties us together. It is the truth that ties us together. And that is the lens and that is the filter at which we need to approach these conversations. These things that are so divisive, these things that cause conflict, some of them we absolutely need to sit down and we need to have some conversations about. We need to start sending some letters. And some of them are not worth dividing families for, dividing the church over. Culture, culture permeates everything that we do, whether we like it or not. The last few years have shown us some interesting things about culture, some interesting things about uh, what one group believes over what another group might believe. There are uh, churches, there are congregations gathering right now that believe in the Holy Word of God, that believe that Jesus died for their sins, like you and I believe, and that uh, he is the only way. And there are others who believe stuff similar, but different. And there are others gathering who don't believe this at all. Some would call themselves Christians still. Does that that bother you? Okay, we've established that there's, there's some bother there. When we look at the culture of the world around us and we try and fit, we try and fit Jesus into that culture, what we're doing is selling out Jesus to appease, to please, to not cause offense in areas where the truth is offensive. When we become passive regarding our culture, regarding the culture of Christianity, then we create a dynamic that invites watering down the gospel, changing the truth, all for the sake of trying to get along. As though we can't get along, but also speak the truth. And the long-term effects, the long-term ramifications of this is a quiet, complacent, irrelevant church. A bunch of Christians who are part of a group that gets together on Sunday. Who hangs out for a little bit, who sings some songs of worship and praise and who goes back to their life until next Sunday. 
You see, our culture is one that is steeped and rooted in a a life-changing impact, a Jesus who came, who lived a life here, who died on the cross for your sins and mine, who carried that cross up to Calvary as far as his almost dead body would allow him to take it. And we pounded those nails into his wrists and his feet. We hung him up there on the cross. And he died a brutal death for you and for me. This is truth. And it's not so that we can go on living the way that uh, we wanted to live our life. It's not so that we can just kind of plod along and say, okay, Jesus, I get it that you died for my sins and that you conquered the grave three days later. I get that. That's great. Thank you. Thank you for doing that for me. Thank you for doing that for me, Jesus. But that's quite enough. You've changed me quite enough. I'm going to go ahead and press pause on this relationship. I'm going to press pause here because I'm afraid that if, if, if I'm with you a little bit longer, I might actually start talking like you. I might actually start loving people like you. I might start looking at people that look different than me and realizing that they're still people. That they still deserve to know who you are. So I'm going to press pause here because I might actually have to start changing. I might have to start doing something that's a little uncomfortable. I might have to get outside of my comfort zone. So let me press pause here because I don't want to give up this part of my life that I've been holding on to so tightly. I don't want to give up these relationships. I don't want to give up these drugs in my life, whatever that may be for you. I don't want to give up this way of living for, for you, but I, I, like, I like you and I like what you're talking about. In our culture today, we get to deal with this thing called your truth versus my truth. And so the question comes down to it, what if my truth says that your truth is wrong? Who's right? I was having a conversation not too long ago. A couple weeks ago, uh, I sat down at a coffee shop with uh, two guys who um, are, are, are becoming really great friends of mine. I'm really enjoying the relationship that we're building. Uh, they do not know Jesus whatsoever. And this conversation went like this. We're talking about it, and, and I'm just sharing my testimony. I'm just sharing what God's done in my life. And uh, I'm sharing uh, something that kind of rubbed one of them the wrong way. And, and, and he goes like this. He goes, well, that's, that's cool for you. That's cool for you that, you know, that's your truth. But, you know, my truth is a little bit different. And so I asked him, I said, well, well what is your truth? Share, share that with me. And he, he started to share, and, and I was listening and asking a couple of questions and just trying to be present and listen. And he got done sharing what his truth was. And my response was this. Well, my truth says that your truth leads to eternal damnation. My truth says that your truth is a lie and that it's false. But here's the truth. 
At one point, I was just like you. I believed that truth. And then I had to, I had to step back and wonder if there was a the truth, if there was an actual truth. And so I started asking some of the same questions that you are. And you know what I found out? That there is the truth. You see, the world is going to try and sell you this idea. They have already been selling it. They're pitching it to our kids. You can be whatever you want to be. Do whatever makes you happy. As though this world can offer fulfillment. As though the things of this world can fill that gap in your heart. You've got this space in your heart that is a very unique shape. And the world is out there handing out all sorts of different shapes saying, here, if you pound this in hard enough to that space, it's going to fulfill it. It'll fill it up. And we've got people destroying their lives, trying to ram this false truth into this little space. And all it's doing is creating damage, destruction. And yet you and I, we have the truth. We've got the perfect peace. The perfect peace that's going to fit that space. So I'm looking forward to getting together with these guys in a couple of weeks. So we can keep talking about their truth. And I can keep sharing the truth. Culture is a beautiful thing. Culture is an absolutely beautiful thing. But if we're not paying attention to it, if we're not careful as a church, we will lose our culture entirely, as we have been doing for years. Diversity is a beautiful thing. And it seems the more we talk about a society, the more we elevate it, the more divisive we become. Our churches should look similar to our neighborhoods. That's just a a logical fact. And who cares? That should be a beautiful thing for us. It should be. It should be something that we are not working towards for the sake of diversity, as many have done. We do not need churches to start hiring people of color or of a different background to attract a certain crowd to this group. What we need is people sharing the gospel, trusting God for the results. That's one aspect of culture that has permeated many conversations these last couple of years. Another aspect of culture is the the political culture. Left versus right. And I promised Aaron I would not go in much. As Aaron and I were talking about these different cultures, the different ways that culture distracts us from the truth, this is absolutely one that has come up. We'll get so polarized that we will cease to be able to converse. The reality is, There is a truth, and it is the truth. 
So if you're going to talk about politics, make sure you know the truth. On whatever issue, on whatever person that you're talking about. Do your research. And be willing to have some conversations about it. Because again, this is an aspect of culture that we should be paying attention to. Because if you don't pay attention to it, it's going to have the impact, the negative impact, that we so try and avoid. Instead of us building and founding this culture of Christianity, this culture that Paul is so committed to and so devoted to, instead of this culture of, hey, Jesus matters. This is the mission that matters. This is the thing that is the most important in your life and mine today. This is what matters here. And yeah, I'm going to talk to you about anything else as well. Because at the end of the day, there is one truth, there is one way. And that is what Paul believes. And that is his message for us today. And in coming chapters... Paul's journey is about to get much more bumpy than it even has been so far. And yes, Paul was stoned and uh, nearly stoned to death not too long ago. And yet it's going to get more and more bumpy here. So in the coming weeks, we're going to pick up and Paul's going to be in Jerusalem. Some prophecies are going to come true that we read about in the last couple of weeks. And we're going to see him continue to press forward, continue to face that discomfort, continue to move in truth, to take the truth with him at all costs. As we uh, turn our attention today into a a time of communion, uh, I'd like to pray for us as we we close out our time. I, I thank you for sharing some time with me, studying under the word this morning, worshiping under the word. My, my hope and prayer for you is as you think about these cross-cultural differences, that you choose, you choose to get involved, you choose to be present, you choose to have some conversations. You choose to be the light in the darkness. Father God, would you uh, just move in our hearts as we uh, prepare to accept communion, to share in communion with you, Lord. God, as we, uh, as we move into our, our, our weeks ahead, as we finish the study of, of Acts, may we be the church, the church that is very much so uh, involved in the lives of our neighbors, but we're the ones bringing the influence, not being influenced by the culture of the world. God, may we be a church, a body so convicted, so committed, and so focused on what you have called us to do. That there's nothing else that matters. There's nothing else that could take that, could take that away. God, would you lead us in a way that, that is only, only defined, can only be explained by your glory and your goodness. God, we thank you. In your name we pray.